I went back this week and picked up a book I had already read. It was um, Billy Graham's autobiography, if you've never read it. It's called Just As I Am, which would be exactly what you would think Billy Graham's book would be entitled. That's a great book. Uh, you ought to get it and read it. Went back to one of the early chapters where Dr. Graham talks about his conversion to Jesus Christ. In 1934, a man by the name of Mordecai Ham came to Charlotte to hold a revival meeting. The meeting was supposed to last only a week, but it went on for 11 weeks. Uh, they had preaching every morning. They had preaching every night except Monday night. Uh, they built a 5,000-seat tabernacle just to hold the crowds that were coming to hear Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham was a pretty controversial figure in his day, according to Graham. Here's what Billy Graham says about Mordecai Ham. He, Ham, he did not mince words about sin, either in the abstract or in its specific expressions in our local community. His candid denunciations of various evils got reported widely in the newspapers. People were drawn to the meetings, maybe out of curiosity to begin with. I did not attend, he says. However, everything I heard or read about him made me feel antagonistic toward the whole affair. It sounded like a religious circus to me. Of course, Billy Graham finally did go to that uh, meeting. In fact, he decided that he'd sing in the choir. Uh, he figured if he sang in the choir, he would be sitting behind Mordecai Ham while he preached, and so he figured Ham wouldn't look back at the choir, and uh, he wouldn't have to deal with the accusatory stare that Ham was noted for. Billy Graham was extremely uncomfortable in those services, but he, he writes in his book that he could not, for some reason, he couldn't stay away. Now, we know what that reason was. It was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was speaking to him, drawing him to Christ. And so on his 16th birthday, Billy Graham got converted at a Mordecai Ham revival meeting. I read of how a newspaper reporter interviewed Mordecai Ham on one occasion and said, Dr. Ham, do all your converts, do all the people who, who make decisions, do all your converts actually hold out? Do they, do they make it on past just that initial decision? And Ham said, no, they, they don't. The reporter said, well, have you ever given any thought as to how you might keep them from backsliding? And Ham said, yep, I have, and I have a sure cure for that. So the reporter was excited, got his pencil ready to write it down. Here, we're going to get the cure for backsliding. My gracious. Uh, what's the cure then? Ham said, after every great revival meeting, they ought to have a shooting and kill all the converts while their hearts are right. I'm not suggesting we do that this morning, but uh, I am sure interested in making, making doggone sure you have your heart right this morning. So I want you to turn with me to the most, what I think is the greatest evangelistic passage in the scripture, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Romans 6, 23, this verse simply tells us how to, not only how to be saved, how to become a Christian, 
how to get to heaven from Seymour, Tennessee, how you can go from living a miserable life to living an abundant life. Let's stand together as we read God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word. Romans chapter 6, verse 23, you know it by heart. I hope you do. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, uh, help us now to listen with spiritual ears. We may have already decided I don't need this sermon this morning. I made a profession of faith a long time ago. I got baptized a long time ago. Uh, I don't need this isn't for me. But I believe every word of Scripture the Bible says is inspired by God. It's profitable for each one of us. And so I pray we'll listen because you have something to say to every one of us this morning, I believe. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Life is full of choices, isn't it? When I was growing up, northeastern North Carolina, sometimes we went to the little town that was close to where I grew up and went to the Tasty Freeze. I don't know if y'all had Tasty Freezes around here, but uh, we had a Tasty Freeze, and Daddy would take us over there occasionally to get a ice cream. If you wanted ice cream at the Tasty Freeze, you had two choices. You had vanilla, and you had vanilla with sprinkles on top of it. And that was it. I had some family members who lived in Norfolk, Virginia, which was about 60 miles, maybe a little farther than that from where I lived. And so occasionally we would go up to Virginia. My daddy stopped one day at this place called High's, High's Ice Cream Shop. And I went in there, and they had 25 different kinds of ice cream. I thought I had died and gone to ice cream heaven. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. Now, of course, you can go to Baskin Robbins. Don't they claim they have uh, 99 uh, ice cream flavors? When I was a kid, we had three television stations that we could get. We had an antenna uh, out on top of the house. We got ABC, NBC, and CBS. That was it. You either watched it or you didn't. Now I've got 150 channels. And there still ain't nothing on that thing worth watching. Today, life is full of choices. And some of those choices are very important choices. You're going to choose where you're going to live. You're going to choose to whom you're going to get married. You're going to choose the kind of career you're going to have. And all those choices involve commitment. Commitment. I heard about this fellow who was getting married, standing in front of the preacher on his wedding day. The preacher said to the groom, do you promise you'll take her for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health? The old fellow thought for a minute. He said, yes, no, yes, no, no, yes. I really thought that would go over better. <laughs> you, you see what he did, right? He said, are you going to take her for richer or poorer? Yes, for richer, no, for poorer. That, that's what, okay. I thought it was funny. Maybe you're just not awake. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you to make a choice this morning. 
But before I do, I want to share with you four very simple but profound truths. Four truths directly from Romans 6, 23. These are four truths you can be absolutely sure of. They are absolutely true. There is no refuting what I'm about to say to you. Here's the first one. The first one is this. Sin is ugly. Sin is ugly. This text says the wages of sin is death. Now, eventually, there's going to be some good news, but before you can ever hear the good news and before you understand the good news, you have to understand just how bad the bad news is. Death is not a pretty sight. Death is as ugly as a rattlesnake in a baby's crib. It is as dreaded as a cancer cell in the bloodstream. It is as devastating as a tornado that leaves a path of destruction in its wake. The problem that we have in the church today, the problem that we have in America today is that we have minimized sin. There is a moral relativism that uh, is, has taken root in the lives of most people today, including those who call themselves Christian. <clears throat> it is to the point that churches and preachers seem to be afraid to talk about the old-fashioned idea of sin. Sin may be politically incorrect, but I want you to understand it's a biblical fact. Many people will admit they're sinners. There's not a soul in here this morning who would not admit that they were a sinner. Here's the problem. We just don't think we're that bad. We're sinners, we just aren't that bad. We're not wicked sinners. We're nice sinners. We're cultured sinners. We're educated sinners. We're B-minus sinners. A little above average, but not, we're not A's. We're just sort of B-minus. Well, my question then becomes, has God somehow changed his idea on sin? Is the condition of sin no longer wicked in the eyes of God? Deep down in the recesses of your heart, I got to believe you know better than that. The Bible says that because I'm a sinner and because everybody that I know is a sinner, because everybody in this room is a sinner, we have earned something. There is a price, there's a, there's a wage that is to be paid because of our sinfulness and my paycheck is what? Death. The wages of sin is death. Well, big deal, Pastor Keith, we're all gonna die. I've had four funerals in the last 10 days. You don't have to tell me about death. I know all about it. I walk to that cemetery more times than I care to. But I want you to understand something. I'm not talking about physical death. Yeah, we're all gonna die. That's true. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about spiritual death. Do you know what death really means here? It's not talking about physical dying. It's talking about eternal separation from God. That's what it is. So the wages of sin, you could write this down so you remember it. The wages of sin is eternal separation from God. It's not just dying physically. And the Bible calls the place 
where you're going to spend that time separated from God, it calls it hell. Do you understand how tragic it is to be totally separated from the presence of God? If you don't understand it, let me explain it to you this way. From the moment that you were born, from the moment that you took your first breath until this very moment right now, you have been enveloped in the presence of God on planet Earth. Whether you're a Christian or not, that doesn't matter. From your first, birth, from your first breath until now, you have been enveloped in the presence of God. Hell is the place where God's presence is not. So there is no sustaining presence in hell. There is no protecting presence. There is no restraining presence. Do you know what it is that keeps every woman from being raped every single day on this earth? You think it's because we're just good people and we've got people walking around who know better? What is it? that keeps you from having all your possessions ripped off every single day? What is it that keeps somebody from just breaking in your house every day when you go off to work and stealing whatever it is that you have? There is a restraining force in this world today which is the presence of God. That's the only reason evil is no worse than it is is because we have the restraining presence of God. But hell is a place where God's restraining presence does not exist. People today want to deny death. They try to do everything they can to avoid it. They try to put it off. That's why we're always trying to look younger. We tie this in and tuck this in and lift this up and poke this out trying to change our appearance so we don't look older. Well, I want you to understand something. Physical death is not nearly as bad as what this is talking about. Physical death is not nearly as bad as what Paul says the wages of your sin is. It is eternal separation from God. Here's a second undeniable truth. First one is sin is ugly. Second one is judgment is sure. Judgment is sure. We live in a day where people mock the idea of judgment. In fact, the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 5, that evil men do not understand justice. Even in the church, nobody wants to hear messages about judgment. It's amazing. It's amazing to me that folks who don't believe another word in the Bible, they don't believe anything in the Bible at all, but they know one verse in the Bible. They know that verse that says, judge not that you be not judged. I don't have time to explain to you why that is a misinterpretation of that verse, but it is. And listen, that's hypocritical. If, if, if the only thing you worry about is being judged, 
So you, don't, you ought not to judge me. You don't know me. You can't judge me. That is hypocritical because you either believe all the Bible or you don't believe any of the Bible. You can't pick and choose which parts of the Bible you want to believe. You can't pick and choose which parts of the Bible you want to abide by. We have been greatly influenced and our children have been extremely influenced today by the God of humanism. This idea of humanism seeks to deify man, humanize God, minimize sin, and eliminate the idea of any kind of justice, any kind of judgment. In other words, everybody possesses some measure of truth, and so you have your truth, and I have my truth, and so I believe what I believe, you believe what you believe, and we're both right. Well, that's just the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. That's not possible. That doesn't follow logic. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says this, it is appointed unto man once to die and after that, what? Judgment. Judgment. One of the greatest preachers of all time was a man by the name of R.G. Lee. Dr. Lee had a very famous sermon that he preached. In fact, he preached that sermon more than 2,000 times. The title of the sermon, there's a book uh, they put it into the form of a book. I have it in my library. It's called Payday Someday. Some of you may have actually heard Dr. Lee preach that sermon. It took almost two hours, if you can imagine. It took almost two hours for Lee to preach Payday Someday. It was one of the most amazing things I've ever heard. And in that sermon, he was talking about exactly what I'm talking about today. And, he, and his, his whole premise was, one day, payday is going to come. You're going to have to pay up. Judgment is sure. And he always told the story as he preached that sermon of, of a time when he was a pastor of the First Baptist Church, New Orleans, Louisiana. And he was there for three years, and he had a daily radio broadcast. And he would receive letters. Every week, he received a letter from somebody who was caustic, critical, cursing. He, he said these letters contained the most vile scathing language he had ever heard in his life. Uh, they uh, talked about God. They talked uh, anything good, anything spiritual. And he said he received these letters every week for three years, and the way the writer would sign his name, he would always sign his name, the king of the kangaroo court. Dr. Lee said those letters were so vile and full of such hateful things, he didn't show them to anybody. And they were always signed, King of the Kangaroo Court. Well, one afternoon, his phone rang. It was a nurse calling from Charity Hospital in New Orleans. Nurse said, Dr. Lee, there's a man here, not a member of your church. He's asked to see you. Dr. Lee said, well, who is it? The nurse said, he told me to tell you that he's the king of the kangaroo court. So Dr. Lee went down to the hospital. He said he went into a ward of terminally ill patients. And he said, I had already envisioned in my mind what this guy must look like. And what he had visioned was this old man who was aggravated by life, who just had a hard life all his life and now was bitter toward everything and everybody. Instead, what he found in the bed of the man who claimed to be the king of the kangaroo court was an 18-year-old boy. He was emaciated. He was 
completely eaten up by some kind of disease. Dr. Lee walked over to him and said, I'm R.G. Lee. Anything I can do for you? He said, the boy looked at him and with a scowl on his face, he said, no. No, there's nothing you can do for me unless you want to throw my body to the buzzards after I die. I doubt the buzzards would even have me, he said. R.G. Lee spent the next several hours trying to talk to that young man about the love of God. Tried to talk to him about Jesus Christ, but he would have nothing to do with it. And so just before that 18-year-old boy died, the king of the kangaroo court said, Dr. Lee, I know you go all over America, you talk to young people. He said, I do. He said, will you do something for me? He said, I want you to tell people wherever you go that the devil always pays off in counterfeit bills. And the boy reached out his hand as if he was going to reach up for a life vest to take Dr. Lee's hand. And with a rattle and a gurgle and a wheeze, he breathed his last and he died in that bed. The nurse rushed over and said, Dr. Lee, let me wash your hands. Don't touch this boy. What he has is a dangerous, dangerous infection and you, you don't need to touch him. And then R.G. Lee would always say something like this. Sin always pays off, but its pearls are clay pearls. Its diamonds are lusterless plastic. Its nectar is hog slop. And then he'd quote a verse from a little poem that went like this. This is the price I pay just for one riotous day. Years of regret and grief, sorrow without relief. Small was the thing I bought. Small was the thing at best. Small was the debt I thought. But oh God, the interest. You've heard me say it before. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go. It'll always cost you more than you want to pay. And it'll cause you to stay longer than you intended to stay. Sin is ugly. Judgment is certain. Here's the third undeniable truth. Eternity is a long time. Eternity is a long time. I did a funeral several years ago in a cemetery that I had never been to before. And when I finished the service, I got in my car and I started out, and you know how those cemeteries are sometimes, they got roads going in every direction and you just keep turning and you keep turning. I kept turning thinking eventually I'm going to find a way out of this place. Well, I didn't. I turned down one little path and before long I came to a path and there was a sign at the end of that path that said, no outlet, dead end. I thought, how appropriate. How appropriate that in a cemetery there'd be a sign that says no outlet, dead end. That's exactly how many people view life. They live, they die, and they believe that the graveyard is their final place. We call that the doctrine of annihilation. People believe that when you die, you're simply annihilated, that you just simply cease to exist. 
But listen to this. Dr. Warner Von Braun was an influential scientist in the U.S. space program, and he has scientific reasons, he said, for believing in life after death. Braun wrote this, science has found that nothing can disappear without a trace. That's what people who believe in annihilation believe, that you just cease to exist, you disappear as if you never were here. And he says, science has found nothing can disappear without a trace. Nature does not know anything about extinction. All it knows is transformation. If God applies the fundamental principle to the most minute and insignificant parts of the universe, doesn't it make sense to assume that he also applies it to the masterpiece of his creation, the human personality? I think it does. Ladies and gentlemen, eternity is a long, long time. I'm not so concerned about what humanists say. I'm not so concerned about what the those who believe in annihilism say. I'm interested in what the Bible says. And so listen to this. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Here's what Jesus said. Then he, God, will also say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So here's what I know. I know that sin is ugly. I know that judgment is sure. I know that eternity is a long, long time. Here's the fourth undeniable truth. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. I told you, you cannot understand the good news till you first understand how bad the bad news is. We have spent a generation or more of preachers standing in pulpits just getting people, young people, old people, doesn't matter who, to walk down an aisle, join a church, and get baptized somewhere, and then they never live the Christian life. They never make any attempt at all to follow Jesus. They think somehow that because they joined a church, somehow because they got baptized, somehow because they show up for Sunday school and worship once a week or once every six weeks, that somehow that's going to get them into heaven. But look at the last part of verse 23. The gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Lord is a word that describes commitment. You're not just getting, we're not just handing out get out of hell free cards up here. That's not what getting saved is all about. It's not just about saying, well, at least I know they went to heaven. I'm having a hard time. I'm going to be honest with you, just a little transparent. I'm having a hard time standing up at funeral after funeral after funeral after funeral and saying to people, there's a lot of people who I stand up, and fortunately for me, the vast majority of them, I know for a fact that they had made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. They're in heaven, and they're rejoicing, and I thank God for that. But you'd be surprised at the number of funerals I have to stand up at day after day after day, and and only thing that I know anything about them is it says they were a member at Valley Grove Baptist Church. They ain't darkened the doors of this place in years. If they have, it's just barely coming in. They're not involved in anything. There's no evidence of any fruit in their life that they have served God. There's no evidence that they have loved God. It just 
says they were members of Valley Grove or any other church I've ever pastored. It's all the same. We've made a terrible, terrible, terrible mistake in helping people to believe that just because they wrote their name on a church roll somewhere, they're going to heaven when they die. In that same book, Just As I Am, Billy Graham said, and this book now is 20 years plus old, in that same book, he said that he believed that 80% of the people who were members of churches in America today were just as lost as they were the day they walked down the aisle because they never truly committed their lives to Jesus Christ. And I would suggest to you that if he thought that 20 years ago, how much more is it today? Romans 8:32 says, God did not even spare his own son but he offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Our salvation, listen, salvation is free, but it's not cheap. It costs God something. It costs God his only son. And that wonderful gift of eternal life is, a made, is made available to you and to me when you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Well, Pastor, I believe in God. Pastor, I believe in Jesus. Isn't that enough? That's a good question. The answer is no. The greatest fallacy in America today is those who think all you have to do is believe in God. Believe in some supreme being and you'll be okay. James 2 says, even the devil believes in God. Do you think he's going to heaven? So it's not just about believing. It's about receiving Jesus. And the only way that you can do that is that when you come to Christ, you repent of your sin and you turn from that sinful lifestyle. We can't separate salvation and Jesus. It is utterly impossible for any preacher to overemphasize the fact that salvation and Jesus are inseparable. Jesus Christ is our salvation. He is the way. All other ways are counterfeit. I don't care what any religious group says. He is the truth. Everything else is a lie straight from hell. He's the door. He's the only door. He's the singular door. All other doors open to the pit of hell. And so the question is, do you know for sure that you know Jesus in a personal way? The Bible says that he stands at the door of your heart and he knocks. And if you would hear his voice and open the door, he will come in to you and you will live with him forever. And as simple as I know how, those are the four absolute undeniable truths of the gospel. And the fact that Jesus saves is the greatest news you will ever hear. Just this last week, I was talking with somebody and... Um, they said, somebody asked Creed McCoy one time, why do you preach on salvation 
every time you get up to preach? I've been asked that same question, by the way. Why do, why do, you, why do you preach on event? We've all been saved. We've all, we've all walked the aisle. We've all got baptized. Why do you keep talking about that? Creed's answer is my answer. Because that's what it's all about. That's all that matters. Whether or not you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Do you know him this morning? Are you sure? He said, I've been, a, I've been a member here for 60 years. I didn't ask you that. I got baptized this day and this place and this body of water. I didn't ask you that. I ask you, are you absolutely sure that you've given your heart and life to Jesus Christ? Bow with me. All heads bowed, all eyes closed. No moving around. Holy Spirit, I pray that right now you would speak to our hearts, convict us of our sin, and help us to know that we have repented, confessed, and that we are following you. Not that we joined a church, not that we were baptized, not that we are a deacon, not that we're a Sunday school teacher, not that we're anything but a child of God. Would you please confirm that in our lives? And if you cannot confirm it, I pray right now that you would make us uneasy. I pray that we would not be able to rest one moment until we had taken care of it. And it doesn't matter how old we are, how young we are. I want to make sure that I know, that I know, that I know. In Jesus' name I pray.